Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. Before we get going, I thought you might like to know that after almost four years, author events are back at Shakespeare and Company and in a reimagined event space on our first floor. We have such an exciting lineup in place for you in the coming months. There's Holly McNish and Michael Peterson in early February. Then in March, there's Danny Kane, author of How to Protect Bookstores and Why, Rachel Kushner giving us an exclusive preview of her wild new novel, Creation Lake, and Perlitzer Prize winner Viet Tan Nguyen discussing his memoir, A Man of Two Faces. Beyond that, into the spring, we have a blockbusting book-to-screen event with Otessa Moshfeg and Luke Goebel, as well as conversations with Sheila Hetty, Samantha Schweblin, Hari Kanzru and Rachel Kusk. As always, readings are free, unticketed and open to everyone, so do arrive early to secure your seat. Also make sure you keep an eye on our website, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter to be the first to hear about our upcoming events. And if you can't be at the bookshop in person, remember that you can listen in to past events here on the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. We're so happy to be bringing writers and readers together again and look forward to seeing you at the bookshop soon. Now, sit back and enjoy the interview, whichever one you're listening to. My guest for this year's Valentine special is one of the most innovative, radical and compelling writers at work today, Mina Kandasamy. I came to Mina's work through her formerly groundbreaking novels, The Gypsy Goddess and When I Hit You, but she began her career as a poet and she returns to poetry with her latest publication, The Book of Desire, a new translation of the third part of the Tirukkural, the foundational poem of Tamil culture. In all of its 2,000-year history, this song of love, desire, yearning, and all that goes along with it has only once before been translated into English by a woman. With her new translation, Kandasami offers what she calls a feminist interventionist translation. Since this is the first and only translation of this great poem I have read, I can't really speak to how it compares to previous versions, but I can say that it feels fresh, lively, and sensual, as if the feelings it describes have been experienced not two millennia ago, but on this very day which in a very real sense they have, and which I suppose is very much the point. Alongside her wonderful translation, Kandasami has also written a fascinating, pugnacious introduction, providing readers a history of the poem, both public and personal, as well as an accessible primer to the translator's art, its pitfalls and its rewards. Mina Kandasami's translation of The Book of Desire is a genuine marvel, and I'm thrilled to say she joins us to discuss it. Mina, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Hi, Adam. Thank you for having me with you today. It's it's a, it's a delight to have you here, if only um, if only remotely. Um, now, before we we dive into the the poetry of this book, I'd like to talk a little bit about your history um, with with this particular with this particular poem. So you begin the book um, dedicated to Appa, Doctor Kandasami, and you write, "One summer vacation in my teenage years, you made me read and learn by rote every single curl. I never realized it then, but that changed everything." Um, could you tell us a little bit about how that changed everything? Um, so I think I'll actually start with the fact that the book is dedicated to my father. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a book about lovers. Mm-hmm. And technically, ideally, um, in an easier world, in a more tolerant world, it should have been dedicated to one of my lovers. Ah. <laughs> but what happened here is that all my lovers were either non-Tamil or they happen to be spineless 
<laughs> as, as in the Tamil men wouldn't want to own up to being with me or having been with me at any point in time. And I didn't feel comfortable enough dedicating it to a guy who is not Tamil, who would not access the same text in the same way, which mm-hmm. is why, hence the translation. Mm-hmm. So I felt, um, so, you know, the, the, only, the only victim of, you know, my dedication could be my father because he introduced me to this text. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, for me, like at that age, it was like, you know, I, I went into the text really reluctantly, I must say, uh, because um, I kind of uh, saw that as a moment where my father was like, you know, this is our culture and I really don't want you to miss it. And you really mm-hmm. have to learn. And there's a very special way in which it's um, there's a very special way in which it's learned by little children. Um, in that they learn everything by rote. So if there are mm-hmm. 1330 Kurals that make up the larger poem at the Tirukural, then you learn everything and you actually know the number and then the corresponding kural. So you become mm. like a little parrot. <laughs> and for my father, I think it was part of his guilt because, you know, I went to a very a state subsidized school, which was very close to my house, but it happened to be a federal school. So I learned only Hindi and English and not uh-huh. my own mother tongue. So my father realized that at some point I have to learn my mother tongue to be Tamil enough, you know, to have this connect because he's a Tamil scholar. So I learned the Tirukural and, um, you know, huge resistance, of course, but still this was my dad. He was very strict. He was a disciplinarian. But at some point, I think that's, you know, I I think especially the love poems, I really started realizing that this is a very beautiful world, even if it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, coming through to me through my parents or coming to me through the broader culture. And... um, you know, at the time, I really didn't realize that you know, it's going to play such a massive role in my own life. Um, so for me, um, I must be thankful to my father. You know, you could have, uh, that is also an age where, you know, a lot of parents would push you like, oh, do another extra hour of math or do an extra uh-huh. hour of <laughs> You know, like become a sports person, get better at chess and, you know, win a, win a title or, you know, do well in math and become an engineer. But my dad was like, you know, read love poetry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm- I'm probably bringing kind of quite a lot of my sort of repressed English kind of Victorian hangover kind of um, attitude to this. But it it seems kind of unusual, I guess, from an English perspective that to have such sensual poetry, because that's what it is. Like, it's not, you know, it's it's declarations of love, but it's very, um, yeah, it, 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 it's not, at least in your translation, it's not steeped in euphemism or anything like that. And I'm just curious about that as sort of something given to... Um, to sort of children and teenagers to to read is that something that sort of separates? I know you've lived in the UK, like that separates sort of let's say English and Tamil culture. That uh, Tamil people would be more comfortable with that level of sensuality. Um, and it's it's again very interesting, Adam. The thing is, um, there's two aspects to this. So um, coming back again to my father, like absolutely, like we grew up in a house without television, without radio. Uh, without, uh, you know, uh, never having gone to the cinema until I was an adult myself. So I don't think the idea was to, you know, be um, liberated or liberal Uh in any sense. We we had very strict parenting, um, no going out of the house in the evenings uh, without a chaperone. So it's all of this very, really, really strict upbringing. But the thing is, um, um, the Tirukural is thought, but often the love poetry is not thought. Like very recently, yeah, last year, uh, a Tamil judge uh, was listening to a petition saying this should be mandatory and made compulsory in schools and he agreed with it and he said, okay, make it mandatory but don't 
teach the section on love because you know mm -hmm. that is inappropriate for young people. So there is that. But on the other hand, nobody says don't read it because one is that I think, um, uh, you know, like I used to read that and when I was that young, like 13 or 14, I really used to think of some of my mom's and my father's love for each other in these mm -hmm. poems because you know my mom is a very possessive person. So <laughs> I read this and actually empathize with my father. There's things like, you know, um, this guy says, um, you know, I was just thinking of you or and then she starts crying like, oh, but when did you stop thinking of me? Or he says that I love you more than all. And then she says, mm -hmm. then whom, then whom? Like, you know, the yeah. fact that he just says she, he loves her triggers her. So I'm like, oh my God, this is exactly my mom, you know? Uh -huh. and also, so in, in a sense, like, even if you're really a child, like you don't have to, you could project that to any kind of love, even, you know, very uh -huh. sanctioned matrimonial love. So um, I don't think um, there is that level of repression in Tamil culture. Mm. Um, and on the other hand, it's also true that, you know, it doesn't mean that, um, you know, parents and children are discussing sex at the dinner table. Mm, or, right. <laughs> so so we'll have to, we have to understand this whole thing with moderation. Mm. But also um, a lot of people do think that, um, I, I think it was very specific because my mother, my father had this arts background. Um, like, you know, he would ask, he would ask me, oh, you should read Shakespeare. You should read, you know, and I was reading mm. Romeo and Juliet and, you know, so people are like, oh, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, mm. I don't think they would like to stifle you in that way. So mm -hmm. um, there's obviously, um, but I do, so it's true. But the book itself has suffered from, I think, a longer history of, you know, being translated um, by, let's say, either Victorian, um, mm. uh, you know, people who are here, like, you know, officers of the British government, mm -hmm. or let's say even by the early Jesuits, for instance, um, there's a Jesuit a priest called Vira Mamunivar who does mm -hmm. the original first translation. And this book is too radical for him, like it's too dirty for him. So he does the first two parts and he leaves the third part. Uh -huh. And um, so that's the, <laughs> that's yeah. the it goes, yeah. Um, so this is actually one of my favorite uh, portions of the text. Um, the subtleties of sulking and um, um, my most favorite of course comes right at the top uh, this is the kural uh, that we let's say is numbered 1311 um, and in tamil it goes like this and so uh, she's basically telling him i'm reading the translation everyone with womanness publicly feast their eyes but I will not embrace your debauched chest. Um, and I'm going to read the rest of the chapters, um, the rest of the Qurals in this chapter. We sat, we sulked, and we said nothing. He sneezed, knowing well that we would break our silence. We would bless him, saying, long live. Um, this is in the man's voice. I wear flowers, fresh off trees, she burns. You wear this only to show off to some woman. When I said I loved her more than anyone else, she sulked, asking, then whom, then whom? I said, in this birth, we are inseparable. Tears welled up in her eyes. I remembered you, I said. So that means you had forgotten me, she cried and pulled herself away from embracing me. I sneezed, she blessed. Then, erasing her blessings, she wept. Which woman now thought of you, causing your sneeze? I suppressed my sneeze. She cried, Are you hiding from me that your woman is thinking of you? 
I pacify her, she burns. Is this how you do it with the others as well? I long for her, I gaze at her, she burns. Who is the woman on your mind as you take in every part of me? Well, let's talk a little bit about the um, the history of the the poem and indeed indeed the poet. So you go into this quite a lot during uh, the introduction, and I'm not going to to make you retread all of that now. But one thing that was really fascinating to me while reading this was that how the Tamil civilization seems to be shaped and defined by this particular poet. I mean, you mentioned Shakespeare a moment ago, and perhaps in a sense even more so we get the impression even more so that Shakespeare's influence on English and the English language and English culture. This poet, uh, it's a Tiruvalluva, is, yeah. Yeah, seems to have kind of really been foundational in not just Tamil literature, but Tamil civilization generally. Uh, yes, it, it, is, it is true. I think part of his appeal is because of the format in which he, he renders what he says. So it's become accessible, uh, has this unbroken history of, you know, 2000 years, but also the message. So it's, it's hugely secular, like there is literally no specific God, no specific religion. There is a, um, an, 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 you know, operating in the Indian subcontinent, um, you know, the foundational text for, let's say, Hinduism or the foundational text for um, a lot of the other classical language, Sanskrit, would be the Vedas. And a lot of mm-hmm. them are actually founded on the basis of inequality, mm-hmm. on the basis of superiority of birth. And on, mm-hmm. on the other hand, this Kural is, you know, it can be about so many things, but the moment of its subversion and the moment at which the Tamil identity seeps, it both holds a mirror to Tamil society, but also holds a lesson to Tamil society. It says, Pirapokkum yellow irkum sirappava seidol vetrumayan, which means all beings are the same in birth. And that's where it starts, that mm-hmm. you are all equal. And I think it's very important for Tamils to actually construct ourselves that way, that, you know, all of us are equal, all of us are Tamils. So that's where we start. That's that's the basic understanding. But there's also so many ways in which this text, um, uh, for me, this is a text that, you know, you claim and you reclaim and you claim mm-hmm. and you reclaim. And that's how... Uh, and for me, I could have just translated the poetry and left it there. And, you know, the introduction for me was like 48 long pages. And I'm like, should I do this? Should I not do this? Because once I stopped writing, I, I couldn't stop. Because, and many of these questions actually were answered because Sam from Gallup Beggars asked me, how did this text survive? And I'm like, mm-hmm. so how did it actually survive? But it was not a given that this text should have survived. Mm. You know, like there was this culture, it was surviving on palm leaf manuscripts, but there were times when uh, the imposing, imposing culture, the hegemonic culture was actually making people drown these manuscripts or throw them in the fire. So it managed to survive that. How did it survive when there's an onslaught? How does it survive all of this? So I think this text is really foundational. And, and the thing is, it's still relevant today. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just like two or three days ago, um, they had released this photograph of Valluvar and for some reason they had, you know, like dressed him in saffron clothes and they had put this, you know, the Hindu mark of, um, mm. you know, sacred ash on his head. And there was immediate revolt from a lot of people like, why are you trying to saffronize him? Why are you trying to Hinduize him? He doesn't stand for any particular religion. And it's very important because, you know, that's how it's so fun. Like Tamils can be Hindus, Tamils can be Christians, Tamils can be Muslim, mm. but that you don't to be a Tamil, you don't need a religious identity, and so mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, so 
it's not it's not like French secularism, but uh-huh. <laughs> a different type of secularism in which we are like we are fine with everything. We don't want to be identified with any of it, but we are uh-huh. deeply respectful towards all of it. So yeah, I yeah. think um, so. It's it's just a it's a very fascinating text. I think um, the other favorite one is um, this one where she it's called in Tamil it's called Ninjudu Pulatal. So it's basically like a soliloquy, but she's just fighting with her own heart. Um, so in English, I've translated this as berating her heart. Um, I'll read the first Kural in Tamil again just to give you a taste of the language. Um, this is Kural number one thousand two hundred ninety one. Avar nenge avar kadal kandum yaman nenge niyama kagadadu. And in English, it goes. Having seen how his heart is in love with him, dear heart, whose are you when you don't get along with me? Uh, and then I keep, you know, I keep reading the rest of the nine kuras. Having seen he cannot come close or commit, my heart takes no offense. It still goes in search of him. It is said, the ruined have no friends. Is that why, my heart, you abandon me and run after him? First sulk and refuse, then yield and enjoy. You failed to follow this. Who will now rally around you, my heart? The fear of not attaining my lover. And after having him, the fear of separation. My heart lives in this perpetual agony. Uh, I think this is really beautiful in Tamil, so I'm just going to read the Tamil here. Peramai anjum, perin pirivu anjum, ara idumbai tenanju. It's like, uh, this is a wound that just doesn't heal. And this is, as I translated, perpetual agony. Um, and then this, a little more. Um, alone, I remained thinking of him as my heart kept devouring me. Under the influence of my shameless, foolish heart, I forgot all bashfulness, but I could not forget him. Caught in the love of its life, my heart recollects his greatness alone, because blaming him brings disgrace upon it. Who, who will be my companion in grief when my own heart refuses to stay with me? Um, again, the Tamil in this is really beautiful. Uh, this is 1299. Uh, and then the last one in this uh, in this chapter. My own heart is not my ally. Will strangers send their own heart my way? I want to I want to come on to the um, the politics of the translation in a minute, but just resting with the 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 language at the moment. You write in the introduction that Tamil is one of the world's oldest surviving languages, and indeed the oldest classical language still in use. And just yeah. as a, to help those of us who who are not familiar with Tamil understand, when you when you read the the Kurals in in Tamil, is is it essentially the same language that would be spoken? today or is it sort of again to make that comparison with Shakespeare is it that sense of like you feel its age but it's still fundamentally the the same language so kadal is the Tamil word for love it's still same 2000 years ago kamam is the Tamil word for desire for sex is the same malar is the same word for flower is still the same mm-hmm. kan the eyes are the same word you know so I could just read like randomly malarana kannal aruma yariyadu alaramak so, you know, she um, says, unaware of the worth of my flower-eyed beloved, 
this village gifted me poisonous gossip and malar is tamil i is tamil arumai is speciality or worth it's tamil ariyadu does not know that's tamil like i use it every day mm-hmm. you know alar is possibly not so frequently used the word for gossip but mm-hmm. you understand immediately what it is indadu is you know basically the mother giving birth to the child so that's the birthing of something so she mm-hmm. says this this ibur again this village it birthed this gossip not knowing her worth so literally all of this like you know is in the same tamil so of course there are words that are archaic and it's very mm-hmm. important for a language to have archaic words to show that you know these words fall out of use of uh, but i think at the heart of it it's still the same language at least mm-hmm. the word for love hasn't changed the word for gossip hasn't changed the word for man and woman hasn't changed so it's um, a lot of the word i think uh, roughly i'm very bad with statistics but i would say about 60 to 65% all the words i used to use today and 25% if you are like a little bit advanced learner of the language you would know there are very very few words that you know we are absolutely not mm-hmm. aware of or something yeah 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 so let's talk about your translation project so again um near the beginning you write i realize that i have been translating this tamil universe since long before i conceived of it as a literary political project and uh, we get the sense that this is you know at least a decade or more in the in the making so did you did you begin this as a sort of a a personal project or was it sort of did it just grow sort of organically through your sort of relationship between the different languages that you speak uh no i i don't think i had like any grand intention that i should translate this mm-hmm. even though i have to say that at various points i've been disappointed by what i've seen because it just didn't bring out all the layers and all the complexity and all the meanings uh but uh sometimes uh, you know uh there are things that you would like to share but you know like for instance my partner at the moment uh he doesn't speak tamil and then you know i would like to you know translate this to him so mm-hmm. um and it just it doesn't become like easy to translate so you know you're doing that you're doing the translation yourself mm-hmm. so um so i think that's where i said that you know i've been translating this culture without thinking of this as a project of translation because you know like if you're loving somebody from another culture you're trying to say like for instance um there's a lot of in this poems about trying to pick a fight mm-hmm. like having to, but the, the, the but the fight is a pretense to you know patch up and then make love so the fight is a pretense of you know uh to seek validation but also to show interest because if you don't fight where's the interest like mm-hmm. where's the tension there's all of this right so um and it's not you know fight fight but still like a a certain kind of dramatic tension there so and it's, this is really cultural and sometimes you have to unpack your culture to somebody else like oh mm-hmm. you know this is not and then uh, you just if i just say that you know trying to provoke you into a small little fight it's just the way i like to keep you in, engaged people are not going to believe you so you sometimes have to go to this poem and say you know it's part <laughs> of my culture and then, <laughs> and then you like you like i just kind of have to get the world over to bail me out of the situations mm-hmm. i get into so it's like oh this is being tamil so you know uh, now i don't have to feel apologetic now i have a book i can place in people's hands and say oh this is this is the tamil people's love mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah so it's been it's been there for a long time but also even with my own uh, even with my tamil lovers i felt you know often the need to go into this text like mm-hmm. the, the places where it just goes like um how lovers can look at each other as if they're absolute strangers mm-hmm. and only they can look at each other and sometimes you really do feel that you know not all love is public not all love is acknowledged uh, not all love ends up in a marriage so sometimes you're the side chick mm-hmm. 
not. So <laughs> then, then you have to leave this love as well, isn't it? So yeah, so you do keep going back to this text because as you said, it's so fresh. Mm-hmm. It's so relevant to today. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you say that you see translation as a radical and transformative act of political intervention. Is, is that because in a way it's sort of, it allows the kind of concretization to an extent of a reading that you might have of it. So when it's in, when it's in Tamil, there's sort of the, you know, having, having your reading of it be uh, given flesh in a way, isn't sort of, is, isn't really possible because it's in the, in the original language, but once you transpose it into English, it allows you to, to own it and to interpret it perhaps more than it would in uh, left in, in the original. Um, so no, I think it's it's quite interesting. Why I would the, the reason it's feminist is because you know um, there's so much of this text in which there is female desire and it's mm-hmm. throbbing through the whole text. Like it's true, you know. Often you only deal with male desire, which objectifies women, and there's a bit of that. You know, there's a beautiful mm-hmm. woman that goes on about that, but there's also a lot of you know. Um, this way, like this one, uh, everyone talks about it, or you know, they've quoted this often in the reviews. For instance, um, I read the English here I swim the rough seas of sexual desire, I see no shore. So in, in Tamar, it is Kama Kadambunal Nindi Karaikanin Yamatam Yani Ulen. So, and this is all a woman trying to talk about what is happening with her. And she's talking like, she's talking openly about the rough seas, like Kadambunal. Karma cut mm. the rough seas of sexual desire, and you know, and it's amazing that you know when you actually translate this text, like it's of course true that it exists in the Tamil world, mm. but you know when you bring it into this world, you also change what how the Tamil woman is looked at, you know, not as a passive yeah. person, not as a passive object, and to to kind of take the space that exists in your own culture, in your own civilization, and to say this is who we are, you know, because. Uh, one, there's so much, you know, like a la- later a part of Tamil culture became so influenced uh, and so, you know, both by British colonialism, but also by, you know, North Indian, um, uh, in, you know, uh, other uh, caste codes and stuff, mm. which means that, you know, women were praised for being very shameful and bashful. And this mm-hmm. is a text that's like, oh, no, we are not bashful. So uh, in all of these aspects, you know, rescuing the text or in in so many ways, uh, bringing out the, the absolute uh, shameless or powerful women into it who are like, you know, have, making love or, you know, thinking of love, talking about their desire um, and feeling like totally fine with it. I think it's very important for me. Like, mm-hmm. that's what I think it's uh, feminist, but also interventionist for me because, you know, how do you present this text instead of, you know, uh, yeah. hide, hiding it? So it was a lot of this, of course, but I forgot your original question. So, <laughs> oh, this is, this is something nice. Um, it's a called... Um, Nirayarithal, um, and uh, Nirai in Tamil is often translated as uh, chastity everywhere, um, or, but Nirai actually just basically means uh, fullness, and fullness as in being in control of yourself. So Nirayarithal is the destruction of Nirai, or a lament for lost self-control. So um, the battle axe of passion breaks open, breaks down the door of my unwavering mind, bolted with my coyness. Um, and then she says, What goes by the name of love is blind, is unkind, and runs the business of controlling my heart even at mid- midnight. 
I try and conceal this lust of mine with no intimation it materializes like a sneeze. I am perfect. I have such self-control, I would say, but my hidden away lust betrays me, proclaiming itself publicly. Those suffering from lovesickness shall never know the magnanimity of not running behind those who now hate us. But picking up on what you said, um, one thing mm. I found really interesting and very kind of subversive about your translation as well is that, because of course it is, as you say, it's a poem written by a man and you are translating it into essentially what is a kind of colonialist language as well. And yet the the result is something that feels incredibly, yeah, incredibly fresh and incredibly kind of reclaimed. And as you say, f- with a real kind of, uh, sort of feminist edge to it, and I was wondering if you could just reflect in a on, for a bit on that sort of that subversive nature of using these elements of you know poetry by a man and putting it into a language which could be considered a colonial language, and yet producing something which feels radical and subversive. Uh, so the first question is the it is poetry by a man, but then you have to look at uh, how does this man look at women, you know? Mm-hmm. So. You know, I, I think right at the beginning he talks about Pandariyan Kutri and Badanai Ini Arindain Pendagayal Perumakatri. Like in those times, I did not know what is death. And now I've mm-hmm. looked at this woman's eyes and I know what it is like. And mm-hmm. he's constantly calling her like a goddess, but also she has a shock troop of, you know, terrifying women around her. <laughs> She's powerful, her eyes are piercing, and it's always about battle. And so the woman is very strong. Mm-hmm. And so he's not a guy who is like, you know, I saw her in the kitchen and, you know, she was cooking me this meal. And he's not like, you know, she's mm. um, so he I think it's a text that celebrates both the fact that she's gentle and the fact that she's strong. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, I don't think there was any essentialization or any, any type of, you know, subjugation of the women, because obviously if the text was subjugating women, I wouldn't choose it. Mm-hmm. Or I, I, that would that would be a no go for me. Um, so I, and and it's very interesting because Tiruvalluvar is somebody. Um, it's it's this is of course the love poetry, but I know that elsewhere um, in a very important chapter, I think it's very early on. It's about uh, family life and the wife, and um, or and he says something which you know stuck a chord with me, and I write about it elsewhere. He says, "What's the point of guarding somebody's chastity or honor mm-hmm. or whatever you call it?" You know. Um, he says, he says uh, and he doesn't even use any of this words. He says, Sirekakum kapu yevan seyam. So, what is the point of guarding someone like a prison? Mm-hmm. And the second line goes like, Magalir nirekakum kape talai. So, the, the real safety is what women do with themselves, mm-hmm. what a girl does with herself. And I think that's the thing, like, it's a woman's choice, like, how, how she decides and how she perceives herself. And I think it's really radical. It basically says it's none of your business. Like, she can take care of herself. And that's the, mm-hmm. that's the most best way of first taking mm-hmm. care of herself. Like, for me, that's the most powerful text. Like, it tells you, tells anybody not to impose anything. Mm-hmm. Like, a woman knows her way. And I think for me, that autonomy, that autonomy that this text gives to women, that it gives to the expression of love. All of this is so important. So the fact that, and and sometimes, uh, you know, uh, like, of course, Balluvar lives, there's no questioning that. Uh, but, you know, the fact that he's, I'm not going to hold the fact that he's a man against him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, with, it's like with Shakespeare, you know, I'm not going to hold his, you know, his 
you know, his accident of birth against him, the fact that, oh, he was white, he was British, or English, <laughs> and he was a man. But no, no, I, I can appreciate good poetry where it comes from. Um, and then the second thing, again, in terms of uh, English as a colonial language, um, it, it could possibly be seen that way, but I don't know if... Um, I think so much depends on uh, how you use this language. For me, English is, um, English is you know, I, I, for instance, for Tamil people around the world, or Tamil people in India, Hindi is far more colonial than English mm. because Hindi is a, a language mm. whose uh, imposition we resist. And English is something that for us is a global language. It's the language you have to use in order to be understood, in order to, you know, um, it doesn't erase what we are. Like I could, I could write in English and still be the most Tamil person I know. Mm. So um, for me, I don't think the language itself was a problem. Mm. And um, uh, so I, I do think that uh, one thing that was afraid of that I think Tamil people are very dramatic and my idea was that <laughs> the English are kind of restrained. So how do I bring this drama? They're like, you know, there's mm. really too much drama. So, um, but I do think that, you know, I, I tried to do what I could do uh -huh. without being cheesy, because that's the whole thing. Like sometimes the big fear is that you, you could say, like, in, that's the thing with English. It's not, it's not the fact that it's colonial, but because the language is the global mm -hmm. market, anything you say could become cheesy, could become hallmark. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And, that, and that's the connection between capitalism and English as opposed to, mm. you know, even the colonial history in English. And so how do you do that? How do you how do you make it such a personal mm. thing that this woman is talking about this man as mm -hmm. opposed to some something somebody could write on a card? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that challenge, isn't it? I remember talking with um, a Chinese person about the way that Chinese films are often subtitles and in English. And it just feels like essentially like a lot of the time the Chinese people speak in aphorisms the entire time and uh, and I remember this this friend saying yeah that's kind of this would be a kind of a literal translation but of course when it's your mother tongue it doesn't feel like an aphorism it feels very natural and that was going to bring me on to my next question is some of the the challenges on of translation because um, you know I've translated quite a bit from French to English and even between these two languages which are you know comparatively very close uh, I've there's so many decisions that have to be made, both artistic decisions, political decisions, uh, aesthetic decisions um, in going from one language to, to another. So would you be able to talk about some of the, the challenges that you faced bringing uh, this love poetry into, into a, a very different language? No, I, I think it's, um, yes, of course, there's some, there's some aspects of it, but largely... Uh, as you said, you know, like Chinese English or French English, like these are specific language combinations. So one of those things is that um, a predating Thiruvalluvar, we had Tolkapir who wrote the first definitive grammar of the Tamil language, and it's the ancient, uh, the the um, most ancient extant Tamil grammar, so it's still alive today. And one of those things that he codifies, or basically he observes the previous poems, and then he you know draws his connections from that. Is about the landscape in Tamil in Tamil uh, poetry, and how each landscape corresponds to a certain mood. So often, you know, mountains is where the first encounter takes place between the lovers, um, uh, and the, and so every landscape uh, something is about parting. The sea is often mm -hmm. about parting, and you know, um, the desert is about separation. So you know, uh, I will go into this in another podcast. But also each time of day. Is about a certain emotion. So mm. evening is about the pain of separation and waiting mm. for the lover, not knowing they're coming home. So there's a lot of these poems, like, you know, about 
uh, she calls she calls she says evening is like killing her mm-hmm. uh, she, uh, so uh, and i was afraid like what it's 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 like a shorthand right mm-hmm. so in in because uh, because the way the environment is classified like this and because birds and animals are classified uh, because the time of the day is classified and the seasons are classified so each of this belong so it's a tamil shorthand like you know you're talking either about the first meeting you're talking about the parting you're talking about a lover's quarrel you're talking about missing them uh, so you know everything evo- evokes something mm-hmm. but obviously a reader who's not tamil would not or not a tamil scholar because i don't think it's a common knowledge for tamil people at this point but at least for tamil scholars and tamil writers this is a shorthand that exists for them and how does somebody else get this shorthand mm-hmm. they don't right but then right. The, the beauty of the poem is that you don't necessarily have to know all of this but at the same time it's like an invitation like you know at some points you can um learn and uh, mm. you can you can not discern more about it okay this is something that's nice um it's called the lament of the lovesick um and um this is basically the woman uh you know talking about how she feels because the man has left her uh, so it's uh, it's not just the fact that she misses him but also she misses the love making so uh, in tamil it's called padarmelin uh, dilangal that the fact is that you know she's uh, suffering from love sickness and uh, so here it goes i would if only i could hide this love sickness if someone draws it surges forth like a gushing spring No, I cannot conceal it. No, I cannot explain this disease to the man who causes it. It's shameful. My life is torn between lust and shame, and this my frail body cannot bear. My desire is an endless sea. There is no raft to swim across safely. What would be the fate of his enemies? I wonder when he unleashes so much suffering towards his friends. Six. its pleasure a wordless word a sea its paths leading to a pain even more immense i swim the rough seas of sexual desire i see no shore in the dead of night i am alone uh, she lulls all life on this land to sleep kindest night she has no one but me to keep her company crueler than my cruel cruel once atrocities or these late night hours dragging on painfully if like my heart this ice too could travel the inner way they would not have to swim in such flooded waters and this actually brings me on to i think what we we'll, we'll finish on today is that we talked a lot about the the context the language and things like that but we haven't talked a great deal about the content um and one thing that really struck me was both the kind of the specificity of it to uh you know the the tamil people and uh the the vision of tamil women but also the universality of it and um so there there are moments when uh i always felt like i could have been reading uh roland bart in like a lovers discourse there was uh this kind of and i and i don't know is that down to the the universality do you think of love as a as a human sensation uh actually for me um I remember reading Bard sometime in my twenties. Um, some lover sent this book to me and said, "Read this." And uh, strangely, I opened this page on jealousy. Uh-huh. And uh, for the first time, actually, it was very surprising for me because somebody was acknowledging jealousy. 
Mm-hmm. Because a lot of, I think, um, English literature is it's seen as a very negative emotion. Uh, it's seen as a very, uh, as an emotion that's, you know, possibly ends up in duels or something, but, you know, it's something that nice people don't have. But, you know, jealousy is so much like at the heart of Tamil love, like at least mm-hmm. in the Tirukkural, like there's all of this tension around it, um, mostly playful, but it does exist. Um, and for me, then uh, actually, when I read part, I realized, oh, this is somebody else who's normalizing jealousy. Like, oh, well, <laughs> there's a Tamil guy in, you know, in French land. So I, I realized that. Um, so I, I do think that, you know, that's a very beautiful comparison because of the way in which um, it's very fragmentary. And you, mm-hmm. anybody could sink into it and anybody could take something out of it. But also this whole thing about the lover is the one who waits mm-hmm. because so much of this is about waiting. And you yes. know, the way she, she, she's talking about how time passes when she's waiting mm-hmm. and how it's uh, so slow and how she cannot tolerate the nights and how the evenings are so melancholic. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, and then she said, and she also talks about how she keeps herself alive during the mm-hmm. waiting, like, you know, by thinking about him constantly um, and then also berating the fact that he left her alone. So what kind of a guy could leave her alone? And <laughs> commenting and commenting on the people around, like, you know, what are they talking about him? They all say he's abandoned me now. So, you know, it's it's amazing, you know, the way you just go into it. So I think it's really universal. And that's the, that's the beauty. Like, how did somebody make something that is so relevant to us, like so many years later and mm-hmm. just connect with it? You can absolutely connect with it. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a beautiful text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think um, concerning the sort of, um, let's say, message of the text as well, it feels kind of incredibly, um, I think you even use these words in the introduction, like incredibly democratic in some way, compared to, let's say, a lot of um, maybe more historical texts on the relationships between uh, between lovers, between men and women, that it's sort of, it seems to be something which, yes, yeah, speaks to our times across the, the centuries in a way that uh, I think it's quite rare for texts of this of this age. Yes, you're right. I'm I'm going to agree with you. Yeah, that's that's what I feel. That's what I feel as well. Like, um, um, it's um, there's there's something about the total vulnerability of the man and the woman, mm-hmm. um, and um, in in that moment of love, like you know, and there's something so absolutely strong about them together and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are absolute equals because you know, um, uh, and I think the text really honors that, mm-hmm. which is also why I always think that you know, for someone like Valluvar, so he wrote thousand three hundred and thirty kurals, uh, which become one hundred and thirty three chapters, and it's only the last twenty five which is about love, and the rest of them, so uh, the rest of them, the first hundred and eight or obviously about, you know, governance and how a king should be and how a spy should be and mm-hmm. how a minister should be and how a knowledge seeker should be and how a farmer should be or whatever it is, all of this, you know, statecraft that he wrote about or what he wrote about virtue and the praise of rain or, you know, how you respect the environment, whatever it is that he wrote about. And I'm like, why did he have to write about love? He could have just written the philosophy and stopped mm-hmm. there. But I always think that he wrote about love because I think love is this entry point to democracy. Mm-hmm. Love is this mm-hmm. entry point in which you realize that, you know, the world is an equal place, that you have to create something that's beautiful. And unless you realize this at, at the heart of it, at the heart of your first relationship or your fundamental or primary relationship or whatever it is, that unless you start inwards, you cannot do that outwards. You just cannot mm-hmm. go out there and spread equality. You cannot spread social justice. You cannot be like a good minister. You cannot be unless you, this is part of your personhood. 
Mm. Which is why, which is why, for him, it was part of the same book, the same book about materialism, the same book about morality. It's also about love. So for me, it was like you know, a lot of commentators. Every commentator puts it at the end of the book. And Baha, when I did their first translations, for me, it's like I'm starting with love. Like you mm. sort this out to get everything <laughs> else in order. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this is where I start. This is where I think the core of his message lies. So this is called Lessons from Gossip. Uh, so it's um, um, rumor sustains my precious life. Not many know this. We are indeed lucky. Unaware of the worth of my flower-eyed beloved, this village gifted me poisonous gossip. This rumor, this talk of the town makes us feel we have caught what we have not. Embroiled in scandal, sex gets a high turns thrilling, else it loses its swag, its brag. Wine is a welcome joy when rejoicing. Public gossip heightens the pleasure of sex. We met just once, but rumor eclipses. Now we are a spectacle, a snake swallowing the moon. Manured by village rumors, watered by mother's words, this disease keeps growing. A scandal quenches desire the way ghee chokes a fire. My lover asked me not to be afraid, yet he left me a public scandal. How could these silly rumors in town ever put me to shame? Town clamoring is what we desire. Rumors will lead my lover to consent. And just as, as my final question, um, one thing that became comes really clear while reading this is that um and maybe this is just a sort of a truism to say it but that you you you're clearly bringing your poet's sensibility to to this text you're not sort of you know it's there's no sense of a sort of a literal word for word translation there is you know with poetry a poetry has to be translated by a poet but we Mm. also you have you have your a collection of your own poetry coming out um later this year which we're all very excited about and i'm just curious to know could you reflect a little bit on has the process of formally translating this had an impact on your own writing like can you can you feel the uh the the you know the dynamics have you been rewired by it slightly or are they two quite 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 separate projects for you uh i i i don't know how to answer i'm actually going to come into it another way i think the only reason i could translate this text and translate it the way he translated uh, I've thought about it less as a poet and more as a woman in love. Like, mm. if I have to tell the story of my life, like, what did I do? I fell in love a lot. I had my heart broken a lot. I fell in love again a lot, you know. So the, the fact that you've gone through these emotions, and these are really minute emotions, you know. It's not just some, you know, broad stratosphere of love there. And so the fact that you you are living through it and you're living, I think that brings you a level of sensitivity, uh, I couldn't do a medical text this way, you know. Uh-huh. I couldn't. Do, I couldn't do even if I had the language for it. I couldn't do an economics text text mm-hmm. this way. But there's something that I could bring this granularity this to it. Obviously, and also being a poet, I'm sure helped because um, you know I I knew when to pause and when to stop. But also, um, I do think that Tirukkural uh, both is a guiding text, but also this translation does. Uh, uh, help. Uh, one of the things is uh, sorry, sorry, Adam. The thing is, I think part of being a poet is you learn this absolute brevity. 
Mm-hmm. Like anything that's superfluous has to go, so that what stays can you know be sharpened and sharpened, you know. Yeah. And uh, and you you deliver something very forcefully, which actually is my biggest handicap as a fiction writer. And I think I talked to you earlier about this, like how I suffer with every sentence because mm-hmm. I'm not generous with my words. I really like you know pull them back, pull them back, uh, whittle them down. So I do think that you know that's part of poetry. But then with the translations, I realized I had to be even more brief mm-hmm. than even what I was given to being because. He is basically doing all of this in like seven words, roughly. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, in, and in English, like I think the, the smallest quarrel was this one that says, "Quarrel, reconcile, make love." Mm-hmm. These the lovers' rewards. These the lovers' rewards. So I tried around eight to ten words, yeah. but everything is around twenty-five, twenty-six. So you know, it's it still is like you know. But I tried <laughs> to capture. I tried to capture, but but you know, without adding anything to it. So it does teach me. I, I'm sure it does make me realize the the necessity for yeah, yeah. saying less, but also not being ornate. You know, there's nothing that's ornate yeah. in this. Mm-hmm. So yeah. no, no, no. And it's such a such an extraordinary read. And 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 I had to say while reading it, it will be, uh, you know, it'll be read this year and years to come. Like I, I have the feeling it's going to become a a staple in the uh, alongside perhaps uh, Roland Barthes and others' discourse of the kind of books that uh, lovers exchange uh, with each other. Um, at, at certain moments in their relationship. Mina, that is all we've got time for. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, thank you, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, You can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare & Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.